0: Good morning. Um, Also, I would want to say good morning to our brothers and sisters in Wilmington, uh, as we'll be traveling on video for a little while now. I just did something, and I need to explain what I did, because it's kind of funny. In Wilmington, uh, their screen in the Wilmington campus is now 16 flat screen, it's a four by four of flat, flat screen televisions. Uh, that combine to make one big screen, which is which I'm told is very cool. And HD. Except the problem with 16 is, this in case you're ever going to do this in your own home, is the center line of the screen is a seam. So if I'm here, you get that weird sort of half of the person on one side and half of the person on the other. It doesn't make. Sense. So I'm here for you. Uh, and if I need to move a little farther to the left, uh, let me know. <clears throat> it's odd in life how, much, how many things are symmetric, but how often some of the most important things aren't. You think of your body, your two eyes, your nose, your almost in entire symmetry, except for your heart. It's just a little off to the left, right? It's just strange how that is. Well, we're going to be in the 15th chapter of Luke today. So, if you want to turn there, um, we'll actually be there for a few weeks. <clears throat> it's page 747 in the, in the Bible's provided. And while you're turning there, I'd like you to think of a, an object that you have that means more to you than, is, than it's actually worth. It's sentimental, maybe? That to you, it's, it's important. It's meaningful. It's valuable. But on the market, if we were to eBay it, um, it might be even worthless. Um, like memorabilia. My wife and I, a few years ago, were in Ephesus. We went on a, a, a cruise of the Mediterranean, and we were touring Ephesus. And... I had to go to the bathroom, which is not uncommon. Um, So we got delayed in Ephesus, and she went ahead and got on the bus. She heard the tour guide saying, when we get to the parking lot, there's going to be a bunch of people that want to sell you authentic Ephesian coins. None of them are authentic. Don't buy them. She heard that. I was in the bathroom. So when I got on the bus, I was so proud that I got a, a genuine Ephesian coin for like the low price of twenty five euros or some. Oh, it was painful. It's worth nothing, but it was—it's a memory to me. Okay, so it's valuable. My my grandmothers, uh, all my grandparents, as many of yours probably is the case. They grew up during the time of the depression. But all, my grandparents uh, grew, grew up very very poor, and. One of them had her little china, all her little cups and china things in a little hutch, and she'd call them, I don't know, this is how I remember it. She called them her purties, you know, her little purty things. Um, I imagine they meant more to her than they actually meant. You know, Um, you probably see this most around the Christmas tree or most easily around the Christmas tree. Uh, When you look at the Christmas tree that you gather around, you know, every year or so, you'll notice there's things on it that matter to you that are made out of construction paper, and macaroni, and glitter, and glue, and, you know, a somewhat grainy picture of a child. Now, it's worth nothing. If you were to eBay all of your Christmas ornaments, you'd probably get nothing for them. Uh, But they matter to you. In fact, some of those things, as the years go on, and trust me, if you have little kids, cherish it, because as the years go on, it just gets harder on your heart. Because, you know, they're starting to fall apart now. Um, But they are invaluable. And I just want to draw out, as we head into this morning, that there are things in life that we value far beyond their actual value. We value them in a way that is far greater than what they're actually worth. And that should, that should help set us out here as we head into the chapter. The 15th chapter of Luke is three parables. And all the parables sort of hold hands. They're friends with one another. They're teaching towards a common idea. They uh, have, a, have a common problem in mind And the problem shows up in the very first two verses of the chapter. So if you look at uh, Luke 15, uh, verses 1 and 2 have the problem. And it's about Jesus. He's done something wrong, it, it seems. Let me read you the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. The table is never insignificant uh, for people. Even today, who you gather with around your table and how you do it, its not it says something. It was even more significant in the times of the ancient Near East here where Uh, the culture of hospitality was so formal and so central as to who they were as a people. So during this time, if you were to invite someone to a meal, you were essentially saying that they are acceptable to you. That there's peace between you and them. Unity was implied. Forgiveness was implied. There were times where if, let's say that there would have been a quarrel between two groups of people. To invite one of those to your house was ostensibly saying, forgiven. And I think we can understand that, or at least identify with it. To host meant more than to be invited. This is probably the case today. For you to go out of the way to invite someone into your home typically said more than to accept the invitation. Which matters here because while we don't know for sure, if you look at the second verse, it seems as though Jesus is the host, not the attendee. It says, this man receives sinners and eats with him. Imagine, Jesus might be the one saying, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? And he's saying this to people, when they say sinners and tax collectors, he's the, 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 Luke is referring to people who publicly, who were known publicly to be living outside of the Jewish way, living disobedient lives. And apparently Jesus is saying, come on over. And that's a problem. And the more I think about it, the more I can appreciate how it's really troubling for these, these Pharisees. You know, I, sometimes a starting point is just to think of Pharisees as purely hypocrites. I, I think that's an unwise starting point. I think that they're, a better place to start is a place that's natural and familiar to us, <laughs> which are people who are concerned about purity and Righteousness and people who knew the law. God has set up instructions in his law, in his covenant with Israel, that make what Jesus is doing very hard to understand. I mean, a faithful reading of the Old Testament can honestly make what Jesus is doing a troubling notion. The law says... The law describes what you can and what you cannot eat. And one of the very practical ramifications of that is who you will and who you will not eat with. Because the sinful peoples around Israel did not follow their same diet. The law describes how you shall dress and and how you shall not dress. And that sets you apart from the peoples around you. The law has a very, very significant code of cleanliness. What is clean and what is unclean? And that almost completely bars the opportunity of even going into the house of someone who's not living beneath the covenant of Yahweh. There's a phrase in the scriptures, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. That was said as a warning to Israel, remain pure, remain holy, don't drift. There's mandate after mandate from the Lord. Do not mix with, do not consort with, do not eat with, do not intermarry with, do not adopt the ways of those around you. And a meal is sort of at the center of all this. It's just, it's, if it's gonna show up, it's gonna show up at a meal, I mean, think of all the religions that you're familiar with in the world. They almost all surface in some way, shape, or form at a meal. And how you bless the meal, or to whom you bless the meal, what you eat or what you don't eat, what's prohibited from being eaten, traditions that take place at a meal. Dinner is a very religious time. Even if you don't have a religion, (laughs) that's the religion at the table. The absence of God is the present notion. And those who are concerned about holiness are, look on Jesus receiving public sinners and are frustrated by that. They don't get it. I mean, in their mind it's gotta be something of is he breaking the law, the Jewish law? Is he breaking code? Is he saying the code doesn't matter? Or is he approving of their behavior? That's the problem. That's the problem the whole 15th uh, chapter of Luke deals with. <clears throat> and the way that Jesus deals with it is with parables. Parables. He's going to tell three parables. Now, a quick word on parables. Parables are lessons or teachings that are done through the use of an image or an illustration. Okay? They're, co- they're ways of teaching deep lessons through common images. And usually, they're told in order to charge or challenge or indict the hearer. So a parable is going to be given and hiding in the parable rarely does the question, rarely is the question actually ever said, but hiding in the parable is an implied question that is expected to be answered by the hearer as to what kind of person am I? How do I fit in this world? How do I meet that description? Very often the parable sort of leaves the listener hanging as to what do I do now? Usually parables have one main idea. The first two, the two that we're going to read today have one main idea. Meaning, in a parable you might have a lot of details, but usually there's one main idea that the parable is concerned about. And when the parable is teaching about that, it doesn't care so much about all of the other details. It's not like we can climb into a parable like you might climb into an allegory and say, well, the sandal is that and the coin is that. And the sun position means that. Everything doesn't mean everything, something in a parable. The main thing is the main thing and and the rest is dressing. Okay? It's just to sort of give it a place to sit. That's usually the case. Sometimes, like the third parable of this chapter, the prodigal son, it's complex, it's deep, and it has lots of moving pieces. But usually it's simple. And today, our first two are going to be, be real simple. So That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at two simple parables today. And uh, I'll go ahead and start by reading uh, verse 3. Here's how Jesus responds to the problem. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay. In order to understand the parable right, we need to start with why is the parable being shared? And we need to remember, the parable is being shared because Jesus is responding to the alarm over his fellowship with sinners. The Pharisees are wondering why is Jesus eating with sinners, and the parable is responding to that. Okay, that sets us up to understand it right. The second thing is to uh, look at is the structure of the parable. Okay, the way this is structured, the parable is given about a shepherd and a sheep, and then Jesus says, "God is like that." Okay, so God is outside of the parable. God's not a character in the parable. I I know that God speaks of himself as being a shepherd. I'm not rejecting that notion that he's like a shepherd. In this parable, God is not the shepherd. Jesus says, you know how a shepherd is? How a shepherd would go after the one sheep that's lost? Well, God is like that. So the divine idea is outside of the parable. The parable describes a situation then it likens the Lord to it. That's what it's doing here. God is like the shepherd. So what's the meaning? Jesus is saying, you know how, if he was saying it to you, you know know how if you were a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and you came upon the fact that one was missing, how you would leave the 99 in the open country and you'd go out And you would look and you would seek and you would find. And when you found that one sheep, you would joyfully hoist that sheep up on your shoulders and you'd take him home. And you would have so much effusive joy in you that when you got home, you would naturally share this joy with your family and your neighbors. That's how much joy you'd have. Well, God. God is just like that. That's God's nature. God is just like that in the way that he finds joy when a sinner repents. God's nature is like that, shepherd. I think it's... I don't want to say it's simple... Like it's not saying much, but the teaching is right there. God finds great joy in meeting sinners where they are, hoisting them up on His shoulders, and bringing them home. So much joy that He tells people about it that there's joy in heaven when it happens that the salvation of a soul reports in the halls of heaven. Now, I, I said, uh, we, sometimes we have to be careful with the simplicity of a parable, so I want I wanted to spend a second saying what I don't think it's saying. I don't think that God, uh, in this picture, we need to think of this shepherd as abandoning the ninety-nine. Okay. There's no complicated sort of. What did he abandon the 99? Or are we just chopped liver? What's going on? It's not it. Um, even in ancient Near East custom, a flock this size would almost never have one shepherd. So, it be at peace uh, that there's no nothing being said like that. I also don't think that there's some deep theological treatise on the nature of repentance that's coming out of this. That. The way that God has to go to this helpless sheep and has to hoist this helpless sheep up on His shoulders and walk this helpless sheep all the way back, and then for Christ to say, "Call that repentance?" I don't think there's. I don't think we need to figure out how all that works. The parable is about the nature of God. That's what it's about. It's about God's willingness, joyful willingness, to seek out and find you. That's what the parable is about. I do find it interesting, however, that he does use the word repentance. Because I don't think it's the word that I would have used if I was telling the story. I don't think it's the word that we would expect when we're hearing the story. When we're hearing a parable of a shepherd that seeks what's lost and finds it, these are the words that I would have expected, is there's more joy in heaven when a sinner is saved, when a sinner is found, when a sinner is rescued, those, are the, those three verbs sort of stick out to me as more appropriate. The fact that Jesus says when a sinner repents actually catches me. I wonder if Jesus is being sensitive to the Pharisees saying, I don't approve of what they're doing. I'm calling them to repentance. Repentance. I mean, at the end of the day, the parables are for the Pharisees. God, Christ, is giving the Pharisees a lot of time here. He's ministering to them. These are so they might understand. And I wonder if it's just, if it's his way here of saying, listen, I'm not approving of their behavior when I'm with them. I'm calling them. I'm seeking them out in lostness. They're lost in sin. And I'm going to get them. In verse seven, the 99 righteous, I, I don't think the parable is implying that they're actually absolutely righteous. I think it's a comparative statement that the Lord would leave the found to go seek the lost. That's pretty much all I think. It's, that's the heart of the teaching there. And I don't think that he necessarily loves, uh, loves them less, like it's saying. It's talking about a particular joy. It's a particular joy that, that God has in calling a sinner to repentance. And and the joy of all of that. The the, the way that I think about it, the image that comes to my mind is um, a little girl on an Easter egg hunt. Have you ever seen a small child doing an Easter egg hunt? You know, the child is about half, just a little larger than the basket. And the eggs are hidden, like, on the grass. (laughs) They're sitting there, right? And... This little girl, she, she'll, she's going around with her basket, and it's all about finding the egg. There's all this excitement in finding the egg. And when she finds the egg, this child reaches down, and there's all this joy in what she's found. You go, know, she must really be excited about that egg you think. Except, what happens? It goes in the basket, and she forgets about it. Because she's doing what? She's going to find another egg. That's God. That's what He's saying. His, there's particular joy in seeking what's lost. Now, the child is going to rejoice at the end of the day to get all the candy out of the eggs, all of what, what's in the basket. Has, there'll come a time when reveling over the basket is appropriate. But in this age, this season, God is seeking. God is seeking that which is lost. And there's a particular joy When he finds someone and a sinner turns and repents and is found. These parables are about God's nature. Jesus' actions manifest God's nature. Here's another one. This emphasizes it in a similar way. Verse eight. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. So I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. He's saying you know how a woman if she were to lose I don't know how much this is. Is it a day? Nobody knows exactly how much this is. A tenth of her coins. How she would turn the house upside down to find it. If she lost something she'd turn the whole house and if she found it she'd bring the neighbors in to rejoice. Well God's that way. God's like that with you. That's what the parable is saying. God Has excitement and joy over seeking and finding. Here are some implications that uh, impress themselves upon me. Here's the first one God loves rescuing sinners, He loves rescuing sinners. This is not tedious for the Lord. He's not furious at you. He doesn't have his arms crossed. He's not huffing steam. If that is in your mind, if you're not coming to the Lord because you think in your mind that's his disposition towards you, you misunderstand God. God takes particular joy in seeking you out and finding you. Not only that, listen, it's, it's one thing to say that Jesus died for our sins. That does not fully capture what God has done or his nature towards us. To say, well, Jesus died for our sins. Uh, true, significant, profound, but God does an additional thing on top of that. Jesus has died for your sins and God is seeking you out to let you know about it. In your sin, while you are yet a sinner, God is lovingly hunting you down to bring you into his love. He didn't simply do a wondrous thing and then sit back and say, it's up to you to see it. If you're, we'll just see how much you're worth. See if you can find my salvation. That is not the nature of God. God is looking for you. And he loves it. There is joy in heaven when sinners turn. There really is no other God like this. You open up any other holy book of any other religion, you do not find a God like this described. You don't. I mean, in the land of every religion's just the same, I'd say that's absolutely incorrect. No other religion describes a God who's lovingly looking for people who are not looking for him. No other religion. Here's the second thing that's been impressed upon me. It's, I found myself reading this first parable and thinking to myself, Seems like a lot of work for one sheep. And it seems like an awful lot of joy. It seems unrealistically joyful. And I was trying to figure out a priestly, pastorally way of trying to make it sound sensible. I'm just going to confess to you, it seems unrealistic to me. It's an awful lot of joy for 1% market share. It's like one sheep out of 100. One percent now, to be consistent here, the parables start with one out of a hundred, then they move to one out of ten, and the next parable is one out of two so uh, i'm not going to overly stress this point except to say that the f- the first the first parable in my mind seems to overemphasize the amount of work and joy in finding one little sheep the second parable seems to overemphasize the amount of joy she has she finds a coin have you ever lost something that mattered and you found it i don't i don't doubt that you went yes i just don't think you called your neighbors and said would you come over to my house to rejoice with me that even if you lost a child i don't think you did that Right? You probably like immediately start telling a child, whatever you do, don't tell anyone. <laughs> you know? So in the first parable, it seems like a lot of work for 1%. In the second parable, I know it's 10%, but it seems... It seems like more joy than is worth it. And I am caught. With the consistent truth of Scripture, which is that God thinks more of you and me than we're worth. He thinks more of you than you're worth. What are you? One of a, one of six billion? What can that really? What is that really worth? What would you go for on eBay? Really? I mean, if everybody knew everything about you, all your scratches and dents, you would sit there waiting for a bid. A bid. (laughs) God rejoices on finding you. You are worth so much to him. Do you hear this? Some of you need to hear this. He's not angry. He's not waiting for you to grovel in the right way. He has particular joy in finding you and he esteems you as far more valuable than you are actually worth. That it doesn't make sense. It's unrealistic for me to wonder why would God use me or you the way he uses me or you. It Doesn't make sense. He can do it better without us. The only thing you and I bring into the church is the opportunity for accusation of hypocrisy or sin or (laughs) double-mindedness. None of us turn this into the bright, shining city on a hill. But God greatly desires us in a way that is unpractically special. Special. Here's the third and final implication. I think Jesus Jesus is telling these parables to Pharisees so that Pharisees would understand what's happening. And the, the clear implication is that they might appreciate it, that they might get on board, that they might share his joy, that they might go, ah, that's what you're doing. There's a sense that if you understand the measure of joy and the effort of seeking that went into gaining you into his fold. Once you fathomed that, that you're valued far more than you're actually worth and that his joy in you is based upon his estimation of you and not your market value and that he sought you out in your sin and has called you into himself, if we understood all of that, you'd think, you'd think what? We, we would share in that joy? We would look at the sinners and the tax collectors differently, maybe? We would want them to be found. We might bring a word of God to them. We might be sensitive about how our spirit might sound judgmental before them. I mean, the law uh, the law that they've been raised under, the Jewish law, the strong force in it, I, I, everything that Christ is, is I've seen, we see in the law, but the strong force of the law is almost to build a protective wall around Israel of purity, to protect them from the stain of the world, from the darkness and the brokenness of sin. There's a lot of protection from in the law. What Jesus is doing is something more, It's something new. It has about it an offensive quality. It's bringing the purity of God to the sinful. It's different. It's more. It's better. It's what found you. It is what found you. And it changes. This fall we've been challenged. To seek to pray, I've challenged and I hope as we reiterate these things that we own them for ourselves but to seek, Lord, help me remember who I once was so I can see your grace in my life. And Lord, help me, give me love for others. Why? Why? Because God values people far more than they're actually worth. And because he sought you out. And when he found you and when you turned, there was joy in heaven that was shared. I'm gonna ask you to close your, your eyes in prayer and I wanna just invite you. If I wanna speak first to the person here who... Maybe you feel like you have been lost or you are lost or that maybe you're thinking today, God, is, God has sought me out. And I want to I I help you pray. I want to help you approach God. I want to help you turn. God is not saying to you, you have to be perfect tomorrow. God is not saying that you will be perfect tomorrow. God is calling all men and women to turn to him and follow him. And then he gives us his spirit, and his spirit works in us to make us as we one day will be. And that's called life. But the life of the faithful are those who seek to follow. And if, you, if you're at that pivot point, if you're hinging on that, I want to help you pray. I want You can just say in your heart these words, Lord, um, I ask for forgiveness of the things I've done wrong in my life. Lord, I want to follow you as Lord. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for seeking me out. Thank you for wanting me. Thank you for joyfully finding me. And help me to be help me to be a faithful follower, uh, a, a righteous sheep. For those who are found, who are living in the regular joy of God, we can pray, Lord, give us this heart. May we manifest the nature of God. Because he uses us in the finding. And he uses us in the seeking. Where else will he go? Lord, we give you all of this. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.